I'm Gabe Fleischer. It's no secret that I was kind of into politics as a kid. So right before the 2016 Iowa caucuses, I was able to get press credentials from, of all people, Sean Spicer, to go to the Republican debate in Des Moines, Iowa. Totally normal thing for a 14-year-old to do. It was a five and a half hour drive. My dad wasn't too thrilled, but somehow I talked him into it. We stayed at a Marriott hotel. It was a totally nondescript, normal hotel in the Midwest. Except for on that night, it had some of the most prominent journalists and politicians in the country staying in it, including Ted Cruz, who'd gone to win the Coxes that year, but had a pretty bad night at that debate. Chris, I would note that the last four questions have been, Rand, please attack Ted. Marco, please attack Ted. Chris, please attack Ted. Jeb, please attack Ted. Let me just say this. It is a debate, sir. Well, no, no, a debate actually is a policy issue, but I will say this, gosh, if, if you guys say, ask one more mean question, I may have to leave the stage. The next morning, we were in the elevator getting ready to go down to breakfast, when two men and a woman walked in. I started elbowing my dad to see if he recognized who it was, but all I got was a blank face in return. So, I just stuck my hand out and introduced myself. Senator Cruz, my name is Gabe Fleischer. In the other hand, I was holding a copy of that morning's Des Moines Register, which carried the huge headline, Rough Night for Cruz. He was still in pretty good spirits, and even agreed to pose for a picture with me. It's the type of thing that could only happen in Iowa. It's exactly the kind of chance encounters and random occurrences that Clay Masters, a political reporter at Iowa Public Radio, sees all the time. Kirsten Gillibrand, pretty early on in her campaign, was at a bar in Iowa City talking with people put her hand on this woman's shoulder, and the woman said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to get some ranch. It's like, you have to, like, get around uh, presidential candidates so you can uh, get the condiments you need at, at, your, at your local bar. Clay hosts the great podcast Caucus Land, all about the Iowa caucuses. And on this episode, he's agreed to give us a brief history lesson and get us up to speed on the shaky future of the first of the nation presidential caucuses. I mean, the thing that often gets said here is like, Iowa doesn't pick the presidents, it winnows the field. And I mean, that's kind of a generic way to say like, it kind of matters, it can matter, it doesn't always matter. <laughs> I'm Gabe Fleischer, and from St. Louis Public Radio, this is Wake Up to Politics. Let's start with the basics. What is a caucus? To answer that question, I need to rewind back four years and take you to a caucus site in Des Moines, Iowa in 2016. As you can hear, this isn't your standard election where you walk into a voting booth, cast a ballot, and walk out. And these aren't run by election commissioners. In a sense, a caucus is sort of democracy, DIY style. I mean, like, it, it is counting that goes on. There's people that are just, you know, caucus nerds and know a lot about how to kind of tally those votes. And yes, it, it, or I shouldn't say votes, how to, how to tally uh, the, those caucus support for the different candidates. And yeah, this, this can take a, a lot of time and a lot of, you know, volunteer work. And these small meetings go on simultaneously all over the state, in high school gyms, in libraries even in living rooms. They physically stand in different parts of a room, and you hear from a surrogate or somebody that's representing that candidate. They'll make the best case for them, 
and then people will kind of find their corner of the room and who they want to support. And what's what's different also is that if that candidate that you're supporting doesn't get 15% uh, of the room in support of that candidate, there's a second round of caucusing, and that candidate is no longer viable. So one thing that is really important in the Democratic caucuses that we talk about is just who are different people going to be supporting on caucus night. And if they have, you know, two or three people on that list, you know, who's who's their second choice? And I just want to underscore that last part, because it could end up being pretty crucial this election year. In each precinct, to actually walk away with delegates, a candidate needs 15% support in that room. So even if a candidate is doing pretty well statewide, how many delegates they get really boils down to how well they can do in each individual caucus location. Anything less than 15% and their supporters need to find someone else. These rounds of shuffling continue until no candidates under that viability threshold are left. In, in 2020, if there are still this many candidates in the race, I mean, I could see it going pretty long. It's important to note that Clay is laying out the way Democratic caucuses work. Republicans are a little different. Surrogates for each candidate still make their case to voters, but the GOP use a secret ballot process, making it more like most other elections in America. On the Democratic side, when you vote in a caucus, all your friends and neighbors see exactly where you stand. But that leads to another obvious question. How did these caucuses become so prominent in American politics? The Iowa caucuses kind of came out of the chaos of the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Uh, There was unrest over uh, where they wanted to take the party. And so Iowa saw an opportunity, and there are some disputes as to whether or not people knew that you know, they would get the kind of attention that they would ultimately. Certainly nobody thought it would blow up into, the, into what it is now. I mean, there's a saying that there's always somebody in this state that's eyeing the presidency down the line. But the Iowa caucuses didn't really take hold until 1976. Jimmy Carter, an unknown peanut farmer from Georgia, comes to Iowa and starts turning heads. It's an early preliminary skirmish, but I think it is a good indication to the rest of the nation who are interested in the election, and there's a growing interest. You know, the the headline always is that Jimmy Carter won uh, in 1976. That uh, I did have a chance to come in first. It shows a good acceptance of a broad base of uh, constituent interest. He actually came in second to uncommitted, meaning that there were more people that that didn't know who they wanted to commit at the caucuses than Jimmy Carter, but the, the story out of the caucuses was that Jimmy Carter was the winner, and certainly he went on to uh, get the nomination and become the president. Uh, with successes like this one in Iowa, perhaps repeated in a few other states, uh, I think my name recognition will come up even above those uh, who are not running for president and who have run in the past unsuccessfully. That come-from-behind victory, or kind of victory, soon put the Iowa caucuses on the map as a testing ground for unknown candidates to grab the nomination. Like it did for uh, George H.W. Bush. You know, he didn't, uh, he won the Iowa caucuses in 1980, and he was relatively unknown. Of course, uh, Ronald Reagan was the nominee, but, you know, some people would speculate that it was, 
if it not for the Iowa caucuses raising the awareness about George H.W. Bush, maybe he wouldn't have become vice president. So there are kind of two ways that you can think about the Iowa caucuses uh, helping a candidate. And it's kind of like the Carter model or the the H.W. Bush model. It can propel you into winning the nomination for your party, or it can really just kind of, you know, uh, keep you in people's minds, raising your persona enough that, you know, eventually you get the nomination. And politicians of all stripes will do, well, just about anything to curry favor, even with the kids of potential caucus goers. Didn't Trump in 2016, didn't he offer kids rides on his plane at the Iowa State Fair? His helicopter, yeah, at the State Fair. It was this thing where he... uh, he flew to a, a, a location away from the state fair, and he had kids get in his helicopter. They're smart. Let's give them a helicopter ride, okay? Right? Good. He flew over the fair, and there was it was a, around the same time that the that Senator Bernie Sanders was delivering his stump speech at the Des Moines Register political soapbox. And Senator Sanders was on there saying, oh, there's Donald Trump. You know, I apologize. We left the helicopter at home. It's in the garage, forgot to bring it. But Iowa forces all candidates to start small, even the ones with private helicopters. They have to interact with voters on a personal level. But for a lucky few who catch local and then national media attention, things can escalate very, very quickly. The first time uh, I went to an event for South Bend, Indiana, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, it was in a living room of someone's home in a suburb of Des Moines, and the press outnumbered the people that were sitting around the couches talking to him. And in April, just a couple months later, Pete Buttigieg had had a CNN town hall. His appearance on that town hall had really raised his profile. And there were about 1,600 people on the lawn of a uh, high school, or excuse me, on the lawn of a junior high in Des Moines. And they had to move the round table outside because so many people had showed up for it. The saying goes that there are three tickets out of Iowa. If your campaign can get in the top three on caucus night, then you've got legs to at least remain a factor going forward. So there's an exception here and there, but for the most part, that that is relatively what has happened. And it's kind of, you know, your, your first class, your coach, and your standby. But it's unclear if this quirky, folksy caucus process will be able to keep its dominance in presidential politics for many more cycles as Iowa starts to face serious questions about how representative its electorate is in an increasingly diverse nation, and whether the process itself is accessible to enough voters. I want to lay out a couple of numbers. Iowa is 85% white. And according to the United States Election Project, only 16% of eligible voters participated in the 2016 caucuses. That's compared to New Hampshire's primary a week later, which had 52% voter turnout. In other words, Iowa is really white, and not that many Iowans actually participate in the caucuses. Combine that with a series of controversies in 2016 that exposed some of the more arcane parts of the caucus process. And there's been a whole lot of questions about why Iowa still gets to play such an important role in picking our president. But not surprisingly, Clay says when he talks with leadership of both major parties, they argue Iowa deserves to keep its spot. The Democrats will say that uh, it is a representative uh, voting bloc within the Democratic Party of the rest of the country. 
Um, the, the Republican Party chair and the Democratic Party chair both were agreeing that when you factor in all of the early states that it is a very uh, demographically diverse uh, group of voters and group of caucus goers. In other words, they say you need to be holistic when evaluating Iowa's place. They point to other early states like South Carolina, which is predominantly black, and Nevada, which has a large Latino population, as evidence the slate of early voting states are diverse as a whole. The argument goes that Iowa may not be diverse, but if you add it with the other early states, it does create an accurate picture of America. But that doesn't address the other main criticism, that caucuses are inaccessible to voters who don't have the time or ability to go to hours-long events just to cast their vote. And more and more states have been giving up the caucus process in favor of a primary system, which functions just like a normal election. In fact, Iowa is among only six states still using a caucus system this cycle. And the DNC is putting pressure on Iowa and the other five caucus states to modernize their process and make it more inclusive. Clay says Iowa Democrats came up with a plan that would have allowed caucus goers to essentially participate absentee by dialing in to a virtual caucus on set times in the week before caucus day. This is the biggest change to the Iowa caucuses since the inception of the Iowa caucuses. When we first talked to Clay over the summer, he said no one was really sure how that was going to work. You know, I was explaining the way that the caucuses work where they're, you know, it's a high school gymnasium and there's a lot of people in there and it's chaotic. You enter into this as well, people showing their support for different candidates on a, on a phone. There are certainly other concerns I think that could crop up that I'm not even foreseeing at this point. What was already a murky plan became even more complicated when the DNC tested the virtual caucuses for cybersecurity concerns. NBC News has now learned that we may get an official announcement within the next little bit here that the Democratic National Committee plans to recommend rejecting plans for virtual And that's when the plan started falling apart. The Democratic National Committee shot down a plan today that would have allowed Iowa Democrats to participate in the caucus remotely. They cited security concerns. This news overnight last night is definitely a shakeup. No one really knows what will happen from here, what, whether or not it will affect. That left Iowa Democrats scrambling to find a different way to satisfy the DNC's demands for a more accessible process while also maintaining their prize status at the beginning of the calendar. It's going to cause a lot of chaos for some campaigns that were relying on the virtual caucus, but we really won't know how until we know what the alternative is. Then they quickly approved something else uh, called satellite caucuses. Now, this was uh, the Iowa Democrats' replacement idea for the virtual caucuses. And basically, boil this down, these are going to offer people who want to caucus on caucus night to do so from, say, like a nursing home or a factory. But there are still some that are concerned that this doesn't do a whole lot to open up the process. Lots of states are giving up on their caucuses completely. But Iowa doesn't want to abandon their caucus entirely because of a catch-22 involving New Hampshire, which has it written into state law that they must be the first in the nation primary. So if Iowa were to switch to a primary, New Hampshire would leapfrog ahead of them, and they would no longer be the first to vote on presidential candidates, even though Iowa has it enshrined in their law, too, that their nominating contest must come at least eight days before any other states. If Iowa ditched its caucuses, things would get real messy, real fast. But for this cycle, Clay says concerns about Iowa's place in the country have quieted. Well, I think the nerves have calmed among those who are really plugged in after the satellite caucuses got approved. And we caught up with one of those plugged-in Iowa Democrats, State Auditor Rob Sand. 
Where are you right now? I am... Boy, where am I? We called him while he was driving around to hold town hall meetings he was hosting all over the state. I am literally... I have six town hall events today. I am just leaving uh, New Hampton, and I'm on my way to Waverly, Iowa, in Bremer County. Awesome. He says it's nothing new for Iowans to be worried about maintaining their place in the presidential primary cycle. Iowans are very cognizant of the fact that we have a real privilege here in, in being the first. And we take it seriously, so we're always kind of concerned about the idea that we might lose it someday. But that's part of why we take it so seriously. It's part of the why, part of why we uh, do put so much time and effort into making sure that we have a well-run program here. Well-run or not, Clay says Iowans know the future of their caucuses will remain unclear. Uh, I don't think this whole opening the process up for participation is going to go anywhere after 2020. And I think this conversation is just going to keep happening uh, well after the caucuses on February 3rd. And just about everything about the Iowa caucuses is kind of murky this cycle. For the first time, the Iowa Democrats will be reporting three different totals on caucus night. Who won the most draw votes? Who won the most votes after each round of realignment? And what the delicate equivalencies of those votes are? Admittedly, this is pretty confusing. But here's the upshot. We could end caucus night with three different candidates having a credible claim at declaring victory. And a largely unsettled race will remain a largely unsettled race. It's worth also mentioning that even the reporting of these totals has added uncertainty, as the state party decided last minute to use a mobile app for precincts to report the results, sparking a new round of fears of a potential cyber hacking. Nevertheless, Presidential candidates will be spending the next few days sprinting around Iowa, making their case directly to voters. And in a way, it's a direct link back to the very birth of democracy. Philip Freeman is a professor at Pepperdine University and studies ancient elections. I was talking with him for a different episode, and at the end of our interview, he said something I kept thinking about when we were putting together this one. I used to live in Iowa, and so we would see absolutely every candidate come through uh, at the local pizza parlor, and, and we would talk to them and shake their hands, and uh, that was how uh, a Roman uh, election was handled. So we're talking roughly similar processes to how we still vote, you know, thousands of years later today. Oh, exactly. Exactly. I mean, politics has really not changed that much in 2,000 years. We want to give a big thank you to Clay Masters at Iowa Public Radio for helping us with this episode. And if you want to go even deeper into the Iowa caucuses, I highly recommend subscribing to the podcast he co-hosts, Caucus Land. Wake Up to Politics is produced by me, Gabe Fleischer, and Tim Lloyd, the senior producer of On Demand and Content Partnerships at St. Louis Public Radio. And you can get the latest political news and analysis in your inbox every weekday morning by subscribing to my newsletter at wakeuptopolitics.com.